Dr. Tim Lomas is a psychology research scientist in the Department of Epidemiology at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and part of the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard University. Tim's main research focus is exploring cross-cultural perspectives on well-being, especially concepts and practices deemed non-Western. Current projects include assisting with the Global Flourishing Study, a longitudinal study of 240,000 people in 22 countries, helping lead the Global Wellbeing Initiative, a collaboration with Gallup to develop and analyze new items for their world poll that reflect non-Western views of well-being, creating a lexicography, which we're going to talk about that right out of the gates, and a conceptual map of untranslatable words relating to well-being and leading a project funded by the Templeton Foundation to look into Muslim perspectives on well-being. Uh, before entering academia, Tim spent seven years as a professional musician while also working part-time as a psychiatric nursing assistant. Some of you participated in the happy hour uh, where Tim played music at the happy hour, uh, I don't know, two, two three months ago, um, which was incredible. It was outstanding. The music also, professionally as a musician, it was ska music. So that's an interesting twist. True Renaissance man. Before entering academia, Tim spent seven years, oh sorry, I just read that one. Uh, Tim completed his PhD at the University of Westminster in 2012 where his thesis focused on the impact of meditation on men's mental health, combining cognitive neuroscience, narrative, and ethnographic analysis from 2013 to 2020. Tim was a lecturer in positive psychology at the University of East London. Since 2003, he has published over 100 papers and 12 books relating to well-being involving topics, approaches including linguistics, semiotics, art, emotional dialectics, balance, harmony, systems theory, social theory, politics, gender, and Buddhism. And his latest book entitled Happiness was published by the MIT Press earlier this year, 2023. Please welcome Dr. Tim Lomas. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for being here, Tim. Um, so I'd like to start off with uh, positive lexicography. OK. I think that's uh, the right entry point for, for this conversation. So if you could please start there, that'd be great. OK. Well, first of all, it's lovely to be here. It's such a cool setting. It's beautiful. Um, man, there's, there's so much I could say about this. I won't tell you my whole life story, but it's worth me just contextualizing it by saying, I grew up in London, but then, um, like in the UK, there's a system where you can take a gap year and do something before going to university. Um, so um, my mom suggested I go and teach in China, um, partly because she wanted a reason to visit. So I was like, well, OK. Well, I wanted to go away somewhere, and I thought, well, China would be great. I, mean, I had an interest before that in meditation and Buddhism. I picked up some in in books that I'd read, but I thought China would be this uh, amazing adventure, and it was. So um, I went over there pretty naive. I think my friends would joke like I was terrible at geography and would not know Vienna from where that was and the map and so on. So it, it was a mind-blowing experience in so many ways, like really expanding all my horizons, like obviously physically, like emotionally, but also intellectually. So it was so fascinating. I would travel around and I spent some time in Tibet and visited like Taoist and Buddhist monasteries and there was obviously so much that was fascinating about that. But one of it, one aspect that was really striking was just encountering concepts that I had no idea what they meant. Obviously in their original form, 
you might take a word like the Tao or in like a Sanskrit term like Nirvana, and then that means nothing to me. I'd read a description, I still really wouldn't have any idea. Like even now I probably don't because, you know, there's so much depth and complexity to them. But anyway, I have this dawning sense that so much lay outside the boundaries of what I was used to, my cognitive horizons. Um, I didn't have the word back then, untranslatable, but they, they are untranslatable. They weren't in my lexicon. They weren't something I'd grew up with. And I had this just increasing sense that there was so much outside my horizons that was important, relevant to my life, to well-being, to, to happiness, to human existence. So it was interesting. I went back to, to the UK and then went to Edinburgh to study psychology. And I was aware that Buddhism, for example, has this intricate theory of the mind and well-being with so much depth and so much complexity. I think none of that was in my textbooks. Mindfulness was like starting to creep in, but just in a very fragmentary kind of superficial way. So I had this real sense that I'm learning psychology here in Scotland, in the West. So many other schools of thought, systems of ideas, that are completely relevant, and I wasn't getting any of that. Um, but like I say, it was starting to filter in in a, in a tiny way. So that really stayed with me. Then I took my you know, detour through Scottish scene scene and um, psychiatric nursing and so on, got the chance to do the PhD. And then this idea came back around untranslatability, because part of the PhD was, um, it was interviewing like guys in London. Like they turned to meditation, and part of it's like, why had they done so? And they'd been on these intense emotional journeys, often had some dramatic emotional crash and turn to meditation as a last resort. But what's most relevant here is they would pepper their language with these words that they wouldn't use English translations. They talk about um, like meta, which can mean like loving kindness of a kind, but they wouldn't use loving kindness. They wouldn't just use, they'd use meta. And then so language is full of these words that obviously they couldn't translate because if they could, they probably would have done and they just kept them in their original form. And I thought that's interesting, you know, and that just kind of was another piece of the puzzle, but it was all kind of percolating away. And then after PhD, I started teaching in University of East London. We did a master's in positive psychology. Does anyone know positive psychology? It's, it's, it's great. It's, I, I won't get into defining it. There's a whole um, debate there. But essentially, well-being and how to help people experience it and, and promote it. So you know, within the context of that, I had various, well, I went to a conference in 2015, and then I stumbled across this talk by a Finnish researcher about this concept called Sisu. Has anyone, has anyone here heard of Sisu? So it's, it's fascinating. I mean, you can very roughly translate it as like grit or determination or extraordinary courage. It's the, I mean, one classic example they give is um, someone finding some superhuman strength they didn't know they possessed to get through some particular challenge. Um, so she was describing this as something that's really integral to Finnish identity and culture. Um, but like it wasn't readily translatable as those, as those terms, and her PhD was trying to uncover all its nuances, and there was like six dimensions and a whole ethnogra ethnography of the, of the concept. But then she also made the point that this is not only something that Finnish people experience as a potentially universal quality or trait, and she was kind of urging, encouraging psychology to bring it into the table. So the context to that you know, call, there's a well-founded critique that you know, psychology, it's very Western-centric. Like obviously, it's studied and practiced all over the world. But like in terms of like a global scene, it's very dominated by, A, research with Western populations, particularly the US, and like often just college students. Then also kind of conceptually and linguistically, like everything's in English, you know, the international conferences, the main journals. 
And this is an issue when we go back to untranslatable words because we're only using words that we have in English, mainly, and then if a word isn't in English, if it doesn't have an exact equivalent, then we're not studying it. So Nirvana isn't in our textbooks um, and so on. So this critique of psychology as being Western-centric, that really limits it in terms of our understanding of the mind and of the person. So she was making the call that psychology should pay attention to Sisu. And I thought, that's a great point. No, so for some reason, this kind of crystallized everything that had been, all the kind of seeds that had been um, bubbling away, mixing metaphors. But anyway, I, I came home to England, and then I was talking to my mum, in fact, again. She's very influential. And then I was telling her about this talk, and then she speaks a bunch of, a couple of languages, and then at the end of this conversation, it'd be great to just like collect, get a big collection of these kinds of words that we don't have in English. Um, so then I found, because I'm not a linguist, so I'm not sure what linguists think of my work, but I found out we could call this a lexicography of so-called untranslatable words. I say so-called because that's also contentious, because some linguists think you can or you can't translate them. I just mean they don't have an exact equivalent. Like, you touched upon this really nicely. Ikigai is like kind of similar to purpose in life, like a reason for being, but there's probably a reason we use Ikigai and not just those phrases, because there's interesting nuances in terms of it doesn't capture everything you'd want to know about that term. So I thought I'd create this collection of these untranslatable words. So that's been going on since 2015. And it's kind of just slowly bubbling away. It's, um, yeah, I'm up to about 2,000 words so far. I'm just going to gradually adding to it. I go through phases of enthusiasm, and then I, I add a whole bunch of words to it. And also people have, like, I created a, like a homemade website, and then people have been writing to me suggesting words, which has been super helpful. Because the ironic thing is I don't really speak other languages. I mean, I learned French at school, and I picked up Chinese in China. But like, I'm not an expert in other languages. So I'm really relying on bilingual people in, you know, from other languages to say, well, I speak Polish, and we have this word, and it doesn't have an exact equivalent in English, and I know because I also speak English perfectly, so I really rely on other people, so I can either find these words in books or papers, or people suggest them, and then creating this collection, and then it's up on this website where I can refine it, because I found a useful get-out clause is to say it's a work in progress, so that way, if, if someone takes an issue with a definition, I can say, well, it's a, thank you, I'll, and I'll improve the definition. <laughs> So it kind of gets me out of trouble slightly. Um, so it is a work in progress. It's up on the website, and I'm kind of adding to it and refining definitions because I'm aware of the irony of trying to, you know, translate untranslatable words. But you know, I try and give a description of what a word means, and then it's you know it's partial and it's imperfect. But then I kind of refine it and add to it over time. So is this like it's a it's an evolving collection and. There's so much that's interesting about it. Like my approach really has been to analyze it thematically rather than by country because I'm very wary about making like, generalizations about a country. Like here's all the Japanese words I know and here's what I can infer about Japan and Japanese people because that's a whole minefield and I don't like generalizations and you know, countries are so complex and heterogeneous. But I do like to try and analyze them thematically. So if I can take, in fact, there's, well, there's 12 main themes at the moment. So if I take, here's all the words I have that are vaguely related to love or to spirituality or to positive emotions or to relationships or to spirituality, did I say that? Um, Eco-connection, connection to nature, mm. character. So there's different themes. And if I can find all these different words that can lay out the, the terrain, um, I'm a big fan of the cartographic metaphor of language, like language being like a map to help us chart our world. And I like thinking about Google Maps, and you can zoom in on different areas. So you can have a, a region called love, and that covers a whole lot of ground. But then you can zoom into different areas, and then each internal region you can give a label. And that's quite useful. So trying to 
I guess, augment our map in psychology of the concepts we have in terms of how we understand people and their existence? I talked a lot of my I'll stop there. No, that's great. I, I love this. I love this. So I'm happy you touched on the, the cartography metaphor because I think that's especially powerful. Um, so just let me read this back. A couple key things that Tim has talked about is, so you didn't reference the acronym WEIRD, but you kind of referenced yeah. the concept, right? So WEIRD is the acronym that stands for Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic. That's where most academic research is based. Correct. Yeah. And then maybe can you expand on just that and um, just this notion that maybe we think we have the, uh, we've captured the human condition. Um, we clearly haven't. So maybe an intersection between cartography, metaphor, weird, and the expansion of the understanding of your work in the human condition just as a, mm. as a whole. So the WEIRD acronym is useful. It was introduced in 2010 by uh, Joe Heinrich and some colleagues. To give an, it's helpful to give names to things. So, you know, there was this critique, there is this critique of psychology and academia being Western-centric, and then the, they coined this acronym WEIRD, which has been helpful, although it's also been critiqued the way academics do, because you don't want to make a binary, you know, here's the WEIRD countries and here's the non-WEIRD countries. Like, <laughs> like each, basically, think of each letter as a spectrum on which the country can be situated, you know? So you could have a country that might be industrialized, rich, educated, democratic, just not that Western. I mean, obviously, think Japan or, you know, some of the Asian countries. Um, so it's a complicated scene, but you can definitely think of countries being more or less prototypically weird. Although it, gets, it does get so complex, because I was thinking about the United States as like the exemplar of a weird country, but it's, it's filled with so many different cultures and people, and many people who aren't from the West. So it's, again, uh, again with generalizations, it's tricky. But let's just say America is a prototypically weird country. Most of the research has tended to involve, uh, firstly, participants, like I say, college students in America. So obviously, in psychology, you're aiming for you don't have to. Lots of people try to aim for universality and you know, generalizing across people. Like, it's fine if you just wanted to study American college students and then talk about American college students. That would be one thing. But people often study them and then generalize to all of humanity, which is obviously a problem. So you want to, you want to study people globally for a start. So I've done some, I'll talk about this in a moment, but work with the Gallup World Poll. And they've really excelled in that, you know, since 2005. Sometimes about over 150 countries each year annually, so it's an amazing kind of global endeavor. Please, please go there if you want to go there. Yeah, yeah. no. Yeah. So first of all, you want to you want to study people globally because you want to capture the richness and diversity of human experience, and it's important to study people across you know across all cultures, and in fact across all demographics, different age ranges, different genders, and so on. So you want you know the people you study to be as diverse as possible. But the thing is, you can't stop there because it also matters like who's doing the studying and with what concepts. Because it might be one thing to study people globally, but if it's still just like white American men, for example, doing the studying, then that imposes its biases and limitations. So I mentioned the point about the, the ideas we have in psychology being Western-centric. You know, they're the ideas we have in English. So you want to actually realize that you need, well, A, to bring in the voices from people from other cultures, and not just the voices, but their, their ideas as well. So since, this is how I got to know Sam, this is a lovely connection. Since 2019, I've been involved with this project called the Global Wellbeing Initiative. So it's a partnership between Gallup and the Wellbeing for Planet Earth Foundation, which is a, a, a Japan-based uh, foundation. So the idea is to work with Gallup to 
bring in, um, I say items, questions that are in the whirlpool, questions relating to well-being that might reflect more non-Western perspectives. So I'm being cautious with my language here, and I'll, I'll explain why in a moment. But essentially, we've developed this module of eight items centered around balance and harmony, and also these low arousal positive states like peace and calmness. So I want to be wary about calling these Eastern concepts because, you know, there's traditions and philosophers who've emphasized the importance of, say, balance and harmony in the West, like Aristotle had the golden mean, where you want to find kind of the, the middle point between kind of extremes. Um, you know, concepts like work-life balance. So it's not that they are Eastern concepts per se, but they have been given greater attention and thought, I would say, historically in the East. So you have traditions like Taoism, with the yin-yang symbol, for example. So th there's a lot to say there, you know, there's a, a strong association with Eastern cultures. So, you know, that being where the, the foundation is from, you know, we've had two amazing summits there in Kyoto where we kind of thought about these questions and developed these ideas. And then since 2020, we've put these into the Gallup Whirlpool. So not just studying people globally, but you know, bringing in new ideas from other cultures that haven't been given enough attention in psychology. And it's so fascinating when you get the results because you know, we trade so much on generalizations and stereotypes, but when you actually get data, it can overturn them. or It's continually surprising. Um, Okay, I'm just going to try this out. So one of our questions actually wasn't on balance and harmony in the early iterations, but was on the distinction between individualism and collectivism. So I'm sure you're probably familiar with that. So we had a question that we thought would tap into that. So do you think people should focus more on taking care of themselves or on taking care of others? So we coded that. How would you expect that? Taking care of yourself would be, we presume that would reflect individualism and taking care of others would reflect collectivism. Turns out, people saying they should take care of more of themselves, far higher in Eastern cultures. And people saying you should take care of others, higher in Western cultures. So does that overturn the assumption that the West is more individualistic? But not it's all very complicated. You know, how you... Because, <laughs> I mean, we, we wrestled with the reviewers of our paper for this, because there's, there's so many interpretations. Because you could say, should people, that means, well, actually, they don't, but they ought to. So the West might still be individualistic, but we want to correct that or amend it. Or... Another interpretation is, you know, a reviewer made this point, you know, if, if a person in the East says people should take care of themselves, that's because they don't want to be a burden on the group. So you might still be thinking collectively. But, so it's all, it's very nuanced, but it goes to show that you've got to get the data and then you know, think, think in depth about what it might mean. But similar kind of nuances in terms of balance and harmony, there doesn't seem to be any particular trend linking them with the Eastern countries, um, you know, but in fact, even just using East and West is very problematic because, in fact, when we talk about for levels of calmness, the East has the region with the very highest levels of calmness, which I think was, I think was East Asia, and then the with the lowest levels of calmness, which was South Asia. So if, you, if you're talking about the East as a generalization, there's such diversity and heterogeneity even within the East. But it just goes to show the importance of like really getting this detailed data and really kind of giving it a lot of thought. So it's a wonderful project. There is a website, the Global Wellbeing Initiative, so I'd encourage you to, to have a look. We're really just getting started, though, in terms of the analysis and working out what it all means. But I think it's a really kind of exciting way forward in terms of it's not just us. We're helping to re redress the Western centricity of psychology and getting this more globally comprehensive picture. Uh, so the... Um this, you, you touched on this a little bit 
a simple word like happiness, right? Happiness, high arousal, low arousal. Can you, can you talk about that and then also maybe expand on how it informs, how this work is informing policy, right? Mm. So I, I think that's an especially important connection point that when we ask somebody, are you happy? Mm. And there is, so Tim is clearly making the case that there is complexity around just these very simple ideas and concepts. When we ask somebody, are you happy? Uh, that word can come with nuance that then these stats, right? I reported a lot of stats. Those stats can shift perspective and inform policy and, and start movement, positive or negative. Mm. So maybe can you talk a little bit about just that as a simple example, oh, sure. the research there on happiness, low, high arousal, low arousal, and then maybe touch that point on, sure. on um, policy. All right, so like academics spend half our, you know, we spend half our time just like wrestling with definitions and it could sound like just playing with semantics, but I think it is important because the concepts we use show us the terrain, you know. Um, so, my, you know, my, with my boss and I, we've been trying to develop this conceptual map where different concepts, how do they fit together, how do they interrelate? Because sometimes we have words like happiness and well-being and flourishing and they can just seem to be somewhat synonymous or used interchangeably. And like people to use them in so many different ways which is fine, but we've just been trying to develop our own system that works for us. So for example, some people might just use happiness for just hedonic pleasure, and, like, and, that's, and that's fine, and then juxtapose that with like meaning or, anyway, we've been trying to develop a, a system where happiness takes on quite an expansive role. So how to, the best way into this. I really liked your six dimensions. Um, we've been developing a system where there's four dimensions, but in a way you're kind of the emotionally intellectual combined into just mental, and then maybe the professional interweaves throughout them. So let's say there's four or six dimensions. One of them could be seen as like the mental dimension of existence. So for us, we use just happiness for anything positive relating to the mental dimension. So again, I want to bring this to mind, this image of Google Maps and granularity. Just use happiness for that whole terrain, but then there's so many different aspects. There's low arousal positive emotions like calmness. There's high arousal positive emotions like bliss or joy. But there's aspects that aren't even emotions. There might be absorption, like that state of flow when you're really in the moment. For us, that's bundled within happiness. There's a sense of meaning and purpose. That's also part of happiness. And essentially, we just, in fact, we created this taxonomy with 16 different kinds. And that's probably not exhaustive. There could be more. But just creating these prefixes, so there's you know, meaningful happiness or kind of hedonic happiness or contented happiness. So just trying to find, you know, within this whole terrain of happiness, carving out different regions, giving a suitable adjective. And then happiness, that's just about the mental dimension. But then there's like at least four or six other dimensions. So maybe the positive terrain of the physical dimension is, you know, vitality. Or, and the so spiritual dimension might be transcendence. Um, we couldn't find a good one for the social dimension. I said conviviality, but I'm not sure if that's going to really work. But you see what I mean. There's a different dimension. You want to find one overarching term to cover their positive dimensions. Then one thing I will say that's interesting, because we're talking about flourishing. Then for us, we really want to give flourishing an even broader role. Because one issue when you're talking about things like these different dimensions of well-being and then happiness being the mental dimension of well-being, it can still be quite individualistic. You might just think, well, you just focus on this given person, how well they're doing. But we wanted flourishing to take on this much broader role in as much as a person can't really flourish if their surroundings and the people around them aren't also doing well. You could experience well-being and health even amid kind of, you know, deleterious circumstances. But then to really properly flourish, 
people around, the environment, the community, the city, the entire context, all the systems need to be coming, need to be doing well. So just, just quickly, if you want to imagine like a Venn diagram, and then one circle is going to be like health and well-being, and that applies to any living being. So like human beings, but also any organic life form, you know, on this earth or off it. But so life forms, any living being can have health and well-being. Then I want to use flourishing as another circle, just to apply to any system. You know, living, non-living, you talk about a, f a museum might be flourishing, or an economy, or a legal system. Then the intersection, we want to call human flourishing. Or, you know, animal flourishing, but we're talking about humans for now. Essentially, a human doing well, and their context doing well. So for us, that gives flourishing and human flourishing a broader role that it's not just about, not just about a person faring well, but also how their context doing. Because you mentioned policy, and I think that's really helpful too in terms of encouraging policymakers to look at the bigger picture and to think about systems and to think about the role they're in. You know, like one example of this is like in the occupational setting. So I've done some research with mindfulness and you know, it's really useful, it's a really good technique. But there's also a lot of critique about mindfulness being used as like a sticking plaster to like a mask a toxic environment. As in, you know, a workplace might have a, a really poor systemic quality and people are feeling burnt out and overburdened. And then it's like someone comes in and says, hey, just be mindful and we'll, you know, let's, let's give you a mindfulness class at the end of the day. Yeah. And it does nothing to solve the underlying dynamics. Yeah. You know? So yeah. for us, that would be just really in a narrow sense, paying attention to the employee's health and well-being. But if we really want to think about their flourishing, then we'll take into account the whole system. Like what's the workplace regulations, the workload, how are they, you know, the demands placed upon them. So thinking systemically is about the person, but then also the context in which they're in and all the systems that shape that context. I love that. So as you were describing that, I was thinking of that meme with the dog. With, it says everything is okay and everything's on fire around the dog, right? Everything's okay. But I think that's an especially important point when we think about climate change, right? right? Like flourishing is so expansive. Um, so I'm going to ask one question. Uh, start thinking about your questions, and I'll come out to the audience. So the, the, the last question that I have here, unless there's no questions, which I find that pretty hard to believe, um, AI. Yeah. Mm. So, let's, let, so we've talked about the human, but there's this artificial intelligence thing that's floating around. So just maybe how is AI influencing your research? How does it, can you just riff on Oh my gosh, there's so many, so many places to go with that. So yeah. I, mean, I mean, one thing to consider whether these new virtual worlds constitute a new dimension of existence, a new way in which people can exist. Um, I saw this that crazy interview with Lex Friedman and Mark Zuckerberg in the metaverse. And then, but it, like Lex Friedman seemed generally blown away by, you're there, but you're not there, and it's like a, you know, potential for new ways of living. So you know that obviously changes human existence. But then there's also a lot to be done in terms of thinking about like exactly what AI is. I mean, so much debate around whether it can or will be conscious in some way. I'm pretty agnostic, but I can see how it could be, especially if consciousness doesn't require like a biological system and could be substrate independent. So, I mean, one of my interests here is just, I won't go too much into this, but the evolution of well-being scholarship, you know, it's previously Western-centric, and then the new, the latest phase is a much more global perspective, really taking into account people across different cultures, different countries. But then I think where it should go from here is then consider non-human forms of well-being. So, you know, even with our globalized perspective, it's still very much centered on humans. But then a more expanding outwards to consider non-human forms of well-being. So, like, obviously, the, you know, 
uh, organic creatures, the environment as a whole, you know, whether we construe that as like a living system like Gaia or just thinking about the environment generally. But then other non-human systems like, like artificial intelligence in terms of whether they are or could be conscious because there's so many implications for that, but also moral implications. There was this amazing, fascinating interview by Ezra Klein with Ted Chiang, he's a sci-fi writer. I think he wrote Arrival, you know, the book that the film was based on. And then he was talking about the danger of us treating conscious AI systems like we treat battery-farmed animals, just putting them through all kinds of hazards and suffering and not, not really caring about it. So there's like ethical, you know, questions and obligations if these systems can become conscious. So, you know, we're really just, who knows? We're in such early days, but there's so many questions and I just think, feels like my need to be engaging with them on so many levels. Like, simply from a human perspective, is this a new dimension of existence? How does this change normal human relationships? But then also just in terms of what we mean by living systems and how we construe well-being. Um, so there's so much to be said, but all that is to say it's, so, it's still so, so new. Um, but that, I think that's where it will and should go these kind of considerations. So it feels like, to, to go back to the map analogy, we're in that stage where people used to think that the world was flat, right? Yeah. Or maybe even before that. Um, so questions from the audience. I will come your way so that we can get this. Uh, so many questions. <laughs> but uh, I will restrain myself. Um, my, uh, so I, uh, my, my work is um, with people men, who many of them have all the conditions for happiness, uh, but uh, there seems to be an absence of flourishing um, for a lot of them. I'm wondering if you've done um, any uh, zooming in on the dissidence between um, happiness with an absence of kind of systems flourishing around. So for instance, I, I, I think of someone with um, great means financially, and they may be going to all the retreats for mindfulness and do a lot of yoga, but they may be grieving what's happening with the climate um, and seeing that as, as something that weighs them down, or they may be grieving what's happening with um, inequality. Uh, have you looked at what happens, or, or have you looked at language uh, uh, around this, uh, the separation of the, the Venn diagram uh, for human happiness and human flourishing and, and sort of what that results in. Yeah, that's such a good point, because I think, yeah, there's so much to be said there, and I think, you know, one, one angle there is, I'm sure people are familiar with, like, Maslow's uh, pyramid of needs. I'm not sure whether it necessarily needs to be a pyramid. That can be misleading in some respects, but there's a lot to be said around all these different aspects being important in some way, and then realizing this material, you know, affluence or just even security is obviously vital. It's interesting, not, not strictly necessary too, because you can have people in very impoverished circumstances doing very well, so it's a, it's a complicated picture. But at the very least, you might say that most people would need those uh, material circumstances, but, but that's not enough for flourishing, and there's so much more to engage with. But, yeah. So, you know, you need ikigai, you need meaning and purpose. But the strange thing is, that can sometimes be found through challenges. Because I mentioned what, you know, the notion that it might not be a pyramid, because you can find that people in more deprived circumstances can find meaning and purpose in addressing that. Whereas sometimes there's sometimes called diseases of affluence, where there, there isn't sufficient challenge for people, and they might feel that they have that they're lacking purpose because there's nothing for them to be doing. But then again, some people then might find purpose 
in you know finding these bigger causes maybe you're addressing climate change or you know working to eradicate poverty and so on and there's kind of mean there's challenge in that and then meaning in that then if that helps You just read my mind. I was going to ask you about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and where it fits in. Thank you. Oh, good. Okay. I've I've been uh, I'm not working in this field. Uh, I'm a biostatistician, so just here for my own personal um, edification. But uh, I. Uh, recently experienced burnout, and I've been learning about you know what might, con might contribute to burnout. Um, and one of the things that I uh, have read is that um, connection and agency are protectors from burnout. So I'm wondering if those terms have come up in your research and how they connect to the other things you've been talking about. So oh, for connection sure. and agency. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Burn. I mean, I'm not an expert on burnout, but from what I've read about it. Those aspects are so important because it's not, it's not only, it's not even not really about workload per se. I mean, that's obviously a factor, but you could imagine two people with an equally heavy workload and one might be completely burnt out and one might be not. And a lot of that is to do with things like freedom and agency in what they do, but also about like recognition, being credit for their work. So they might have had an equally hard day, but one of them the boss has completely disregarded them or given credit to someone else. And that person, that takes a real kind of psychological blow. So I don't think questions of workload should be taken off the table, because obviously you don't want to overload people in that respect. But so much of burnout is around things like recognition and agency and feeling like respected. Um, and that's why I think like leaders have so much power in creating like the psychological climate of an organization. If you can put those principles in place, it doesn't obviously let you off the hook with working people too hard, but it, it, it does make the point that if you can have these other aspects in place, so giving people agency and respect um, and choice and so on, then it really helps to, I think, lessen the risk of that kind of burnout. Hello, uh, Raf here. Good morning. Um, first, I just wanted to take a moment to appreciate the spirit of uh, curiosity and inclusion that you bring to this to this work oh, in the world. Um, my question: well, I'm really curious about the idea of wholeness and integration. So, whether it's ikigai in the six dimensions or the four uh, that you were talking about in your research, like the harmony between those dimensions. I'm wondering if there are words for that or the impact of that, because I think about that as like the music making that brings those dimensions to life. Mm. So I, I'm just curious if that's appeared in your research around flourishing and happiness. Yes, thank you. And I love that, I love that you mentioned the musical metaphor, because I'm trying to... So we're doing a lot of work around trying to explore what balance and harmony mean. And you know, in this one paper, I call them like a golden thread going through all aspects of well-being because they're not exactly something that's added to a list alongside other elements, like you know, relationships, security, uh, finances, balance and harmony. But the more like principles that go through all of them, in the same way that like, more or less kind of quantifies in a sense, as in you can take all the dimensions of existence. Except in rare cases, it's hard to categorically say whether something is good or bad. Um, obviously things like illness, but 
that doesn't really apply to you. But generally speaking, like, you know, is sleep good or bad? Well, it, it's all about the right amount. So a balance between too little and too much, and that basically applies to anything. Like freedom. Like freedom's generally a, like a good, but, you know, in existentialism, the thing about too much freedom, ontological freedom can be dizzying and troubling. So there's something about constraining that in some respects. Interesting, you know, the paradox of choice being overwhelming and so on. So even things that we normally take as good or bad, actually it is much more about finding the balance between these two extremes and then overall taking all these different phenomena. So you imagine what you want a balanced approach to like diet and exercise and relationships and things like freedom. Then overall, all these different dynamics being in this state of harmony. So it's almost like how we look at all the different elements as a whole. And so that's why we're focusing on balance and harmony as these, I think, quite overlooked principles. Um, this goes to also, you know, I mentioned the Western centricity of psychology, and I think they've been underappreciated in the, the West compared to the East, because you might contrast, for example, this, like an optimizing mindset, you know, about finding the right amount, as, as opposed to like a maximizing mindset, where if something is good, then the more of it, the better, and that's been the dominant trend in the West, as in, well, growth is good, let's just have more growth. And then obviously, you run up against the limits of the environment, and that proves problematic. So that's been the kind of dominant philosophy and approach in, in Western societies. And then I think this balanced, harmonic approach that I think has been more prevalent in, in Eastern cultures like Japan, we're really trying to bring attention to them in psychology as like, this is how we could understand the picture as a whole. Because you know, well-being and flourishing, there's so many different elements. And it's hard to know how to prioritize them and how to think about them collectively. But for us, that's why balance and harmony can kind of interweave all these different elements together. But also, I love the idea you mentioned music, because obviously when you think about harmony, you think about music. And I'm wondering, you know, in fact, I really want to do this paper looking at like, like musical music as a, as a recipe for flourishing. Not like as a metaphor, but like literally, what makes a good piece of music? And then how could we apply that to how one lives one life? You know, Think about a good piece of music, it has all these dynamics, it has highs and lows, quiet parts, loud parts, uh, different tones, even dissonances sometimes. It's a way of making sense of all the different kind of aspects of one life. So trying to draw on music in that respect, we've not done it yet, but that's, like it's, I think there's something to that in terms of how we think about and appreciate music could apply to life as a whole. But anyway, thank you, good question. Hi, um, thank you so much. The conversation is very exciting, like I'm internally giddy. Um, but my question is about loneliness. So our, the US Surgeon General has issued a public advisory, written a book about loneliness, and several countries now have, including Japan, ministers of loneliness. There was just a big conference in Boston. And, and um, Sam, like some of your statistics, it's more, uh, dangerous than smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, like just mm. crazy what seems to be this global language. So my question is, in your work with Gallup, is there language around this idea of loneliness and what appears to be emerging as a global um, recognition that something is happening with us? Oh, for sure, yeah, no, loneliness is so important. And that, that's almost like taken as a given now, like it's, it's in the Surgeon's General Report, it's acknowledged as a problem, and then the issue is, like, how can we think about it? Because I've talked here about the importance of thinking like contextually and systemically. Because you might say this person is lonely, but it's so much around the conditions of modern life that create that. You know, people live transient lives, move from city to city. They're much less connected to their, you know, their home city, for example, as we were in previous generations. Other institutions 
are f not fading, but you know they're losing their hold. You know, we used to be governed by religious institutions that had their issues, but they also brought people together as a community. And then, if those institutions are crumbling and those systems are losing their power, like we're recognizing that, and recognizing that we need to find other institutions and systems to replace that. But it's not it's not easy to do to get that off the ground. Um, you know, I think initiatives. Like, like today is, is a beautiful example of bringing people together. And so I think there's a lot of recognition around creating structures and systems and institutions that can try and reinvigorate that collective spirit, but recognizing that it, that it is a challenge, though, because people try and you can, um, it's hard to sustain in, in some ways. So I don't know where exactly we're going with that, you know, recognizing that we need these institutions, but recognizing they're also hard to create. But so I'm not even sure what the the answer is there. But at least people are seeing it as an issue now, and you know, especially kind of policy making level. Oh, for sure. I mean, there's there's questions on it in the Gallup World Poll, and you know, do people have people? I think one of the main questions they have is like, do you have someone? people you can count on. Um, I don't think there's a question that specifically asks, are you lonely? I mean, there should be. But there's questions around loneliness. Um, and they can tell us so much in terms of you know, whether people do or don't feel lonely. Um, it's, it's kind of slightly harder to get from there to potential remedies and solutions. Um, but obviously, then you can use that to convince policymakers. That's part of why it's so important that people like the Surgeons General put that in. Because you know, when you think about these mental states. Not, it's a stereotype to say, it's not that people really think like this now, but to think about mental states as being like fluffy or irrelevant. Like, I don't think anyone thinks that. Even at the kind of hard-headed policy level, they recognize the importance of taking care of mental health and issues like loneliness. So at least that's the first step. And then all the policy people that experience in that respect can put their heads together and try and help think of solutions. So at least it's being thought about and hopefully addressed. Right? So there is a, there's a book that was recently pub published by Gallup called Blindspot. And it reports on a lot of the data. And loneliness is one of the chapters that they're talking about. There is one chapter in particular that references somewhere in the world, I don't know where, but the researcher had called this person. And it, they're asking the question, do you have someone to count on to that degree? And they found out that it was the person's birthday. Um, and the, the, the person re reported that that was the only so the, so the researcher said, well, happy birthday. And that was the only person who had said happy birthday. And so that's kind of the narrative that supports this growing epidemic of loneliness. So we've got one more question here. And then after that, one final question, if there's any more, and then we'll move to the break. Thank you. So hi there. Hi. Um, my question is trying to connect some dots that you've shared around this notion of collectivism and individualism and also the systems and flourishing. And where have you been able to see or learn or process more around how systems have been able to address this either better at the collective level or better at the individualism level for supporting an individual um, in their ability to flourish, in their ability to flourish within a system specifically, because I think a lot about um, organizations and leaders who have structure and ability to change things, but not often a clear sense of do we change this at the ability for an individual to flourish in our system mm. or for our collective organization, our collective body of staff to improve. And so just curious what you've seen or thought of in that space. Mm, thank you. 
I mean, one reflection I have to tie this back to, you know, the topics of balance and harmony. Actually, I think individualism and collectivism are both very important, as in, if they were two poles of an, of a, you know, of an extreme, then you kind of need both because you don't. You is I for me, I think it's quite dangerous to veer too much in either direction, because at the extreme of collectivism, you might have to tell it totalitarian systems where the individual agents don't matter at all. So you need something about valuing you know, the individual for who they are. But if you move too much in that direction towards individualism, then you lose sight of the collective. And then you know, Margaret Thatcher said there's no such thing as society and then you know, ruined the United Kingdom. So <laughs> the, you, you, need to, like, you need to have both in mind. As in, you need to respect the individual and who they are, but then also have a sense that you know, the collective matters. And somehow keeping both in mind, and I think, you know, I think different countries differ in the extent to which they, they manage that. Um, but that, that is my reflection, because I think sometimes we say individualism and it sounds like a negative thing, as in I'm criticizing it. And I think being individualistic, taken too far, is a negative. But again, the point about balance and harmony being hard to say something's positive or negative. There's values to individualism too, so you don't want to lose sight of that, and then somehow keeping both in mind. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I was wondering how you or Gallup kind of account for the nature of self-reporting in general, because I, I feel like there's so many wonderful coaches and advisors in this room today because we realize that people aren't necessarily that honest, or maybe they don't even know themselves um, if they're flourishing or if they're lonely or, you know, so mm. how do you kind of account for that nature of these people who are taking the surveys in the first place? That's such a good question. And I mean, to be honest, that's like half of what psychologists spend their time wrestling with is how to interpret that kind of data. Because of all the risks you mentioned, you know, there's some aspect of social desirability responding. I mean, you can try and mitigate that by making things anonymous, but people still might want to just give a good account of themselves. There might be a lack of self-awareness or self-knowledge. And yet, it's indispensable. Like, if you want to know how people are doing, you have to ask them. But then, I guess, you know, what's considered really strong studies is that if you can triangulate that with other data, like if you really want to know how, let's say a kid in school is doing, you can ask the kid, but then like ask their teacher and their parents and their friends, and then also look at their school performance and like quantitative data about how they've done in exams and so on. So like ultimately, I would still privilege what the, the kid themselves say, because that's the most direct, and I'd give the most weight to that data. But then to, con to contextualize it with all other kinds of um, data. So for example, you know, so yeah, even in the context of the Gallup World Poll, people answer maybe 80 to 100 questions. So you can try and look at them collectively. So I don't know, to give an example. If someone said they had a, there's one question they have, like, how happy are you with your life, essentially, on a scale of 1 to 10? If they said 10, but then all the other questions suggested everything was terrible, you'd, be, you'd wonder about that. So you do want to see how things kind of hang together to make sense. But I also love, you know, big fan of qualitative research, because numbers only tell you that much, and you just really want to ask people. Um, and then, so I think ideally you want to do mixed methods research, but then even if you can bring in other metrics too, whether it's like physiological metrics. Um, so basically, the more data points you can have, the more sources of data, the more you can triangulate together, the the better the, the kind of the more accurate the picture you'll get. I think. 
please thank Dr. Tim Lomas. Thank you, Tim. Incredible. Incredible. Um, so we will.